Hey, welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. My guest today has walked the walk. He has been on the spiritual path, teaching thousands of people how to meditate for over 50 years. With his wife, Tara, they have a combined over 100 years of sharing their experience, their knowledge of the Siddhas or the saints of the East. They are the founders of the Mahamudra Eco Village in the Himalayas, and they have dedicated their lives to the upliftment of human consciousness. Ramharishi Siddhanath, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Diane. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, wonderful to have you, truly. So why don't we just jump right into the stew and let's just start by talking about what got you started on the spiritual path, the where, the why, the how, how did it all begin? Sure. Well, it's been an amazing journey, um, really a wonderful journey. And it all began for me when I was in high school. My English teacher, who happened to be a highly successful model in New York City, she filled in for my English teacher who had had a heart attack. And uh, her father was the headmaster of the school that I went to. I actually went to a, a private boys' school. And uh, her father begged her to come out to Cleveland, Ohio, to fill in as an English teacher because she had just graduated from Manhattanville College with a degree in English. So she walked in one day, and you can imagine the impact that she had to a high school class of boys <laughs> at a boys' school that had no women around. Right. And uh, she came in, and uh, we were just knocked over. She, <laughs> you'd open up Glamour magazine, and there'd be 10 pages of photos of her. And so uh, I excelled after she came. <laughs> and every paper that I got back would say, A++. There is absolutely nothing wrong with this. I really... Uh, I really went from an underachiever to an overachiever, <laughs> motivated by the beauty of a wonderful, beautiful, intelligent woman. Uh, and so one day she said to me, um, we actually spent time out of school. Nowadays, we'd probably be criticized for it, but I would take her to movies on like weekends and we'd hang out and go have lunch and stuff, purely platonic. It was purely platonic. And one day she said, you should read Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Oh, wow. And that is what started me on the spiritual path. And I feel immensely grateful to her still. And we are still in touch all these years later. And uh, that book really introduced me to the wisdom of the East. Mm 
And after I read that book, I wanted to read every available book. But this was back in 1965. And at that time, there were very few books in my local bookstore about Eastern wisdom. There was the I Ching, Chinese Book of Changes. There was Teachings of the Compassionate Buddha. It was like a little penguin book, paperback. Um, and there were a few other. I think my local bookstore only had four books on Eastern wisdom. And uh, this is an important point because um, when I was in high school, there was not one yoga studio in all of America. Can you imagine that? Right. And now there's millions. Not one. Thousands. Yeah. Over 6,000. Huh. One poll One poll said there's over 6,000 yoga studios in America. And all of that has happened during my lifetime, Ooh. going from none to 6,000. Also, nine out of 10 Americans are familiar with yoga. They have heard of it. And you can imagine how few had heard of yoga back in 1965, right. probably less than 1%, one, 1 probably. Right. And um, another interesting statistic is that uh, over 50% of practitioners of yoga report eating sustainable foods. Okay. So yoga has had a tremendous impact on our life in this in this country. You know, I always talk about whenever we give seminars, I always say that um, in my lifetime, there's been a transformation of our way of life in the West due to the introduction of meditation and yoga. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was part of that. You're part of that. We're all part of that. Anyone who practices yoga, anyone who meditates, anyone who has become vegetarian, whatever, we're all part of a cultural transformation. Before it started, America was a highly, very, well, I think you could say it was lacking in spiritual awareness. Sure, there were, there was Christianity dominant in this country back then, uh, but very little knowledge of Eastern wisdom. And then what changed it all was Swami Vivekananda. Mm -hmm. He really was the beginning of it. He came to the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago and spoke there in 1893. 1893. And he was the first great master to come from the East. And he was uh, really very positively received at that conference, at that parliament on religions. Did you say Paramahasa Yogananda was the second to come? Yes. To Yogananda came in 1920. Right. Yogananda came a little later. Uh, Vivekananda came in 1893, Yogananda came in 1920, and when Yogananda first came, um, he didn't meet with much success. He landed in Boston, and um, he, he really struggled 
for quite some time uh, because it was a, basically a white Christian culture. And they were not used to these dark-skinned Indian swamis coming to America to teach Eastern wisdom. And uh, he didn't have a very, he didn't have much success at all in the beginning. But then he modified the way that he was presenting it. And he made it much more compatible with Christianity. And he did a tour from Boston all the way out to California. And that tour was super successful. He spoke to huge crowds that filled auditoriums all across the United States. And then, of course, he started the Self-Realization Fellowship in California, and he lived uh, on Mount Washington in the L.A. area, and he also lived in Encinitas, and he created the, uh, the Self-Realization Gardens in Pacific Palisades, which is one of our favorite places in Los Angeles. And I'm positive that I'm positive you have been there frequently, many times. Yeah. I, I so, love yeah. All those areas. And and I think you make a good point that maybe is a good segue how these places, these sort of sacred sites, they permeate this energy of the loving of the masters of this consciousness. And Yes. In, and and this is happening on this planet. It's happening in America. And people, like you say, are slowly waking up. We are evolving. More and more people know about yoga. More and more people care about what they're putting into their bodies. More and more people care about how they're showing up in their lives. And, um, yes. and it's making a difference to the collective. You know, many young people today, maybe who go to yoga classes, um, they're not really, they're not very aware of how much change has happened so quickly. Yes. There, Tara and I give, you know, Tara and I travel around the country and the world giving seminars on the great saints of India. And uh, as of now, we've given uh, over 600 free seminars all over the United States and Asia. And uh, quite often when I say to people, can you guess how, how many uh, yoga studios there were in this, in this country in uh, uh, 1965? They're shocked to hear that there were not any. Mm -hmm. They can't believe it because they've grown up surrounded by yoga. Tara and I were driving on a back road in Oregon, deep in the forest of Oregon, and there was a little tiny town with a market and on their bulletin board it said local yoga classes so that just indicates how yoga has penetrated into this culture in a short amount of time there were other great people who also were instrumental in this and i absolutely love these people uh, they're my they are my role model uh, they were europeans mostly who were the first Westerners to travel to the East and to study with great masters in the Himalayas and other places. And one of my favorite is Alexandra David Neal, who, uh, who went to India 
Nepal and Tibet. And she actually snuck into Tibet twice by rubbing dirt on her skin and wearing Tibetan clothes, because at that point it wasn't legal to enter into Tibet for foreigners. And she met with the Dalai Lama. She wrote many, many books about her experiences studying with great masters in the Himalayas and in uh, India and Tibet. And then another person who we're very fond of is Nicholas Rorick and his wife, Helena, who were also trailblazers. They were pioneers. Back when they went to the East, Europeans and people in this country knew practically nothing about Eastern wisdom, practically nothing. And they were the first people to really open the door so that Eastern wisdom could begin to flood into Western civilization. So we feel personally, Tara and I feel a debt of gratitude to these people who underwent tremendous hardships. Nicholas Rorick and his wife traveled for three years on an expedition through India, Nepal, Tibet, Ladakh, China, and all the way up to Mongolia and back. And this was before there were railroads and airplanes. They traveled on horseback for three years. And so we feel a real debt of gratitude to these pioneers who opened the door. And then just one more thing to indicate how a profound, what a profound effect this has had on our civilization. Steve Jobs, who we all know is one of the greatest technological innovators of, of our lives. You know, he invented the Macintosh computer along with Steve Wozniak. He invented the iPod, the iPad, the iPhone that are used all over the world. Well, his spiritual journey began by reading autobiography of a yoga of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda when he was at Reed College. He was going to Reed College and he read that book and that book changed his life and he wanted to go to India. He traveled to India and he met with masters in India and he read many books about great saints, about um, many, many great saints. And when he came back from India, he started Apple. And when he died at his memorial service, every person who attended Steve Jobs' memorial service received a box. And in that box was a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi. He read it every year from the first time he read it, probably for, who knows, 40 years, he read Autobiography of a Yogi every day. It was the only book that Steve Jobs kept on his iPad. Mm. Autobiography of a Yogi. Yeah. So you asked, how did my spiritual journey begin? That's how it began. And then uh, I became a teacher of transcendental meditation. Um, Uh, when I was uh, 22, and I opened a TM center, Transcendental Meditation, on the north shore of Long Island, and I ran that center for 10 years, teaching meditation um, six days per week for 10 years. And um, 
It's interesting because this is rather personal, but when I was young, I was very shy. And people who know me now can't believe that I was shy, that I, I was terribly shy. I, I didn't even like having to go into a store and talk to someone behind the sales counter. I was scared uh, because I was so shy. And uh, at one point after I had been teaching, well, actually after I had been meditating, I had gotten so much benefit from meditating that um, I knew my destiny, my purpose in life was to teach meditation. But how can you do that when you're shy, right? right. If your biggest fear in life is talking in front of people, how can you even imagine that you are going to get up and give lectures? So um, still, I knew this was my destiny. I knew it was my purpose in life. And so I went to a TM teacher training course in Spain. There were a thousand people there from all over the world. And um, at a certain point, after I had been teaching it, when I came back from that teacher training course, I suddenly um, had much more confidence of to get up and give lectures. So I started small. I gave lectures to 10 people and then it became 20 and then 30, 40, 50, eventually a hundred people would come. And uh, at a certain point in 1978, I attended a six month long advanced teacher training course in Saint Moritz, Switzerland. Mm. And this was very intensive. We were meditating uh, 12 to 16 hours per day. Wow. 12 to 16 hours per day. And we were also fasting at times, taking cold showers, um, reading from the ninth mandala of the Rig Veda, which is meant to create soma. To, it's the soma mandala. And uh, we should talk about what. So I had. So people know, what is the Soma Mandala? Yeah, Soma, uh, Soma is a substance. Uh, there are many different theories about what it is. Some people think it's produced inside the body as the product of perfect digestion. And other people believe it's a substance that was created by the vegetables who would uh, actually cook some plants or maybe even mushrooms and uh, create this very powerful elixir called soma. So it's not for sure if it's internal created inside your body. I personally believe that it is because after I was on this course meditating 12 to 16 hours a day, high up on a Swiss mountain in Samaritz, Switzerland, I woke up one morning flooded in bliss. Wow. It was like every cell in my body was having an orgasm. Wow. I experienced bliss beyond anything I had ever experienced. And I got out of bed and I looked around the room and everything was permeated by that bliss. Everything, the walls, the floor, the carpet, the curtains. I opened the window to look out on the beautiful Swiss mountains. 
The mountains were permeated with bliss. The clouds, the trees, the birds, everything in existence was permeated with pure bliss consciousness. And I became a different person. I that morning, I, my old personality completely went away. And I love telling this story for people who feel trapped. They feel that they are one way. They have certain fears, anxieties. There are certain things they feel that they cannot do because of mental and emotional patterns that they're stuck in. But my message to everyone is, no, you are not those mental and emotional patterns. You are pure consciousness, yes. yourself. What you really are, that you were born with, is pure consciousness, pure bliss, Satchitananda, mm -hmm. pure bliss consciousness. That's what you really are. All of these emotional and mental patterns are just overlays, and you can eliminate them. You can dissolve them. That's what happened to me. I woke up one morning, and they were gone. One of my friends came up to me, and he said, you know, I think you need to go to a psychiatrist when you go when you get home because you're not the same person that we've known for seven years. You're like, thank God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just felt bliss, and yeah, that feedback. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that was a big turning point in my life. Powerful. Huge, huge turning point. I never felt shy, and speaking in front of people went from my greatest fear to my greatest joy. I've spoken to groups of 1,600 people and felt no fear, no nervousness, no anxiety. So meditation is powerful. It is powerful. Yes. It works, and it's worked, it's worked for thousands of years. It's time-tested. Yes. We met, I believe, in 2010 when we were in India both at the ashram and um, you mentioned in one of your talks, which I'd love for you to go into, you visited, I believe up in the Himalayas, a Indian yogi sage who I think at the time was 122. He's now 132, if I'm correct. Correct. Yes. He just, he just had his 132nd birthday. Wow. Can you talk about that experience and, what came from oh, that? Oh, gladly. Oh, great. Gladly, because he's really one of our favorite people on this planet. Uh, when Tara and I, Tara and I lived in India for seven years. And the first four years, we never came back to this country. We, we just, we lived in India. And what we were doing, you know, people who were our friends before we went, well, still they are our friends after we went. But uh, <laughs> our friends would say, you you plan to go to India for a whole year? <laughs> and they said, do you really know what India is like? Because they had been, you know, they had maybe gone for a, two weeks or a month and maybe they felt like they never wanted to go back, you know. And so they were a little surprised that we planned to go for a whole year. And we we felt very happy and confident to be going to India for a whole year. And uh, when we got to India, we found we were more at home in India than in this country. 
I think we grew up feeling like strangers in a strange land. Mm-hmm. Like maybe we were old Asian souls who had spent many lifetimes in Asia as Hindus, Buddhists, Taoists. And then in this lifetime, we incarnated into America. And I know now, I know now why we did that. Back then, I didn't know. I just felt like I was a stranger in a strange land growing up in America. But now I know that we incarnated in America in order to be a bridge to bring Eastern wisdom into Western civilization. I didn't know it when it was first happening, but now looking back after 50 years on the path, it's very clear that that has been our role. And that's why we admire so much those pioneers who did the same thing, but they did it at a time when there were not thousands of yoga studios. They, They did it at a much more difficult period. So when we went to India, Tara and I, our purpose in being there was to study the lives of great Siddha saints. And now some of your viewers may be familiar with the word Siddha, S-I-D-D-H-A, and perhaps some are not familiar with what that word means. But a Siddha, the definition in Sanskrit is that a Siddha is a perfected being, or one who has attained the perfection of consciousness. And there have been many siddhas in the history of India, great, great saints, yogis, sages, who attained the perfection of consciousness. And one of the things about that is that siddhas attain siddhis. It's a a different word. Siddhis is spelled S-I-D-D-H-I-S. Siddha is S-I-D-D-H-A. So Siddhas attain Siddhis. And these are what are called the supernormal abilities, uh, miraculous abilities. Westerners are usually familiar with the fact that Jesus performed miracles, like he fed multitudes uh, with a few fish and loaves of bread and he walked on water and things like that. That's in the West, people are most, if you say the word miracle, uh, they usually think, oh, Jesus, right? But in India, for thousands of years, there have been people like Jesus who performed miracles. Not just a few of them, many, many, hundreds or even thousands of siddhas in India over thousands of years. So when we went to India, our purpose was to study the lives of these great Siddha saints. And it was wonderful. It it was a fantastic period of our life where we were researching their lives. We were traveling around India, going to where they lived. And we met Siddhas in India, living Siddhas, not just historical Siddhas. And so on one of our journeys up into the Himalayas. Well, actually, first I should say one more thing about Siddhas. You know, these days, um, movies about superheroes are very popular, right? Mm -hmm. The Avengers, you know? Like, people love to go to the movies and see films about people 
or characters with superpowers. But those are fictional. Those people don't exist. Maybe a young child, (laughs) maybe a 10-year-old child thinks that those characters really exist in the world. But they're fictional. Someone made them up. But there are actually real superheroes of humanity. And those are the Siddhas. These are living people or people who have lived, whose lives are well documented, who had supernormal abilities, things that we don't think are, popu- are possible. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a, famous, um, there's a famous quote from Hamlet. Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So what that means is that there's so much more to life that we are completely unaware of. You know, our eyes can only see a very limited spectrum of light, but there's much more light, like ultraviolet, infrared, beyond what our eyes see. So our senses give us a very limited experience of reality. We know very little about the universe. You know, I just read when I was waiting for this uh, Zoom call to begin, I read a story that the Japanese scientists discovered an asteroid that contained water. I just saw that. Yeah. Exactly. And it's completely shaking up the theory of space and the creation of the universe and everything. So there's so much more that we're unaware of. And one of the things that I'm most interested in is, and this really affected me when I was a teenager, when I started studying the scriptures of India and the sacred books of Taoism and Hinduism, Buddhism, hmm, Sufism, the Sufi way, I discovered that these ancient sages knew so much that we're unaware of about our own bodies, Mm -hmm. how our bodies work, and the world around them. They knew things back thousands of years ago that quantum physicists are just beginning to scratch the surface of. Like, let's cover some of those. What are yeah. some things that they knew that science is just barely catching up with? <laughs> exactly, know? exactly. It's an amazing subject. I mean, you know, if you study Taoism and if you study Ayurveda and Siddha medicine, you find out that they knew about the channels of the body, which in acupuncture are called the meridians. There are nadis, uh, currents of energy in the subtle physical and these ancient civilizations knew about those Mm -hmm. but we're um one thing i always say when tara and i give seminars is um humanity is not an end product it's a work in progress yes you know, we always think we're so advanced. You know, we have some soup, we have supercomputers, we can send a rocket to Mars or whatever. We think we take great pride in how advanced we are, and we think we're like the pinnacle of human evolution. 
But there were ancient societies that knew so much more than what we are aware of, and modern physics is just starting to scratch the surface of that. So these ancient sages are what my wife and I were most interested in, and the Siddhas. And, uh, you know, one time we were teaching in Austin, Texas, and uh, we went usually late at night after we finished teaching one of these seminars, we're really hungry. So we went to a supermarket to try to buy some food. And uh, when I was checking out, uh, I was dressed like this. I was wearing like Indian clothing. And the black woman behind the cash register said to me, my, you look like you've really been somewhere. <laughs> and I said, yes, we actually live in India. We're just teaching now. Uh, and we have been living in India for, I think it was five years or six years. And she said, well, what are you doing in India? <laughs> and I said, we've been learning about great saints. And she said, you mean Catholic saints? And I said, well, yes, there are Catholic saints, but there are also Hindu saints and Buddhist saints and Taoist saints. Sufi saints. And she said, well, Jesus saved me. I said, we also really love Jesus, but we love all the saints from all the different spiritual traditions. So um, this has been what Tara and I have really dedicated our lives to. As you said in the introduction, uh, our life is dedicated to raising the consciousness of humanity. And we feel we feel that it's vital that people all over the world learn about the lives of these great Siddha saints because we're faced with tremendous problems in the world, global warming, right? Running out of clean water, having enough food to feed everyone, even war, terrorism. We have so many problems that need to be solved. And we feel, we're convinced of this, and for us, it's, it's, we feel passionately about this. We feel that the most important thing is to raise the consciousness of humanity. Because everything that we experience, everything we think, everything we do depends on our level of consciousness. When we're in a low state of consciousness, our awareness is very restricted, almost like looking through a telephoto lens. When we're in a higher state of consciousness, our awareness becomes more broad. Mm -hmm. We take in the big picture. Also, when we're in a low state of consciousness, we're under anxiety, depression, fear. That's right. When we're in a higher state of consciousness, we're hopeful, we're optimistic, we're inspired. And also, when we're in a high state of consciousness, then we're more loving, we're more compassionate. So we feel that the biggest, the biggest challenge that humanity is facing is to raise the level of consciousness of humanity. And these, you know, whenever you have to accomplish anything, you go to some expert, right? Mm -hmm. 
If you want to learn how to fix your car, you go to someone who's an expert in fixing your car and you learn from them. And the hardest thing is spiritual evolution. So we better find someone who's done it before us and done it well. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly true. You hit it on the head. (laughs) And so these Siddha saints are the people who have lived and who perfected their consciousness to its highest potential. So that is why we were in India, to learn about them. And after four years of being there, something, I can't even put it into words. I don't know how to explain it. Something happened to us after about four years living in India and learning, traveling all over, meeting these great saints. It was like a door opened. And it was like divine grace showered down upon us. And we began meeting amazing siddhas in India. And at one point we went to the Himalayas and there was a man who was guiding us. And he said, would you like to meet my guru who's a hundred and something like 22 years old at that point? And of course, we said, sure, you know, and he took us to meet his guru. His guru had a little tiny kutir. A kutir means a little cottage. Great yogis and saints often live in small little cottages called kutirs. He had a kutir right outside the cave where he would meditate in. I think originally he lived in that cave and then his followers built him a little cottage. And we went and we met him. We actually spent the night with him. And he was amazing. He's still our dear, dear, dear friend. And like I said earlier, he just turned 132. And he speaks perfect English. Perfect. Wow. He was a doctor. He was a doctor when he was young. But he is, to our mind, he's the most highly evolved, enlightened Himalayan master that we have ever met. Mm. And uh, at, at one point, we were sitting in his kutir, Tara and I. We were going to video an interview with him. But just as I was setting up the camera on the tripod, a huge rainstorm came in. All the power went out. And all the lights went out. So now we're sitting in a dark room. And there's no way I was going to be able to video him. But I did turn the recorder on so I would get the audio. And at one point, I said to him, um, his name is Paramananda Puri Maharaj. I said to him, um, even though I knew what the answer was, I already knew the answer to this question, but I wanted to hear it from him. I said, what are the Himalayan masters doing up here? Mm. And he, he said, through their meditations, their prayers, and their mantras, they are sending out positive vibrations of energy to bless all beings on earth. Mm. And then he paused. He paused. And then he added, not just the earth the entire cosmos. Yeah. 
are the, the uh, Council you know, of Sages? Or is this the Karmic Board? Who are these? Are they the Council of Sages? Well, actually, he um, he's closely aligned with Babaji, the okay. great Maha Avatar Babaji, who Yogananda wrote about in Autobiography of a Yogi. And in fact, he has had darshan. Darshan means you see a great master. You could go, you could have darshan of a mountain, and you go to the mountain and you see it, and there's a transference of energy to you through the act of seeing this mountain. Or you might go to a temple and uh, see a, a statue, a sacred statue of a deity, and have darshan of that. Or you could have darshan of a living master. And in India, people will walk thousands of miles to have darshan of a living master. Um, they'll walk from the south of India all the way to the Himalayas to just see a great master. So that's called darshan. And Paramananda Puri Maharaj had darshan of Babaji three times in his life. Wow. The, first time, the first time was at the Kumbha Mela in uh, 19, oh boy, I think it was 1929. I'm not sure of that date. And then he had Darshan of Babaji again in Varanasi. And then the third time was in the cave where Tara and I met him. Yeah. And uh, he is closely aligned with Babaji and he told us where Babaji is now. He told us where Babaji is living. He told us how many miles northwest of Badranath Babaji is living now. Of course, in Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda said that Babaji is immortal, that he was never born, and he never dies. He's immortal, and he can manifest anywhere, at any time, in any form. So he he can appear here. <laughs> he can show up at your house. Uh, he can appear anywhere in the world at any time, wherever it is needed. And uh, we are, um, Tara and I are very much uh, on that path, on that Babaji path. And uh, the Echo Village we're creating in the Himalayas is under his guidance. It's under Babaji's guidance. The whole way that our Echo Village has manifested is rather miraculous. Tara and I received a Facebook message on like Messenger, right? Yeah. From someone who we had never heard of. This was about a year and a half ago. And this young man, he was 30 years old. He said, my guru said to me, why are Romarishi and Tara living in America? They should be living in the Himalayas wow. and they should be doing their sadhana in the Himalayas. And we had never heard of this man's, of this man's guru. This, the, the, they were out of the blue. They just sent yeah. us messages. And this, this great Himalayan guru, uh, he has four temples and eight ashrams. He's not just a little yogi living out there. He's a big time Him Himalayan master. This Himalayan master said, you should be in the Himalayas and we can arrange for you to be given a mountain. Be given a mountain. 
you can imagine how Tara and I felt. It was like a gift from God. Out of the blue, someone says, we can arrange to give you a mountain in the Himalayas for you to have your own ashram. Now, even though we had never heard of him, he definitely knew about us. Yeah. He had been following us on Facebook. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He had been following us on Facebook. He was a Facebook friend and we didn't even know who he was. You know how it is when you have a lot, like we have almost 5,000 Facebook friends and there's a lot of people we've never met and we don't even know who they are. So he had been following us and he knew that we had been doing a lot of seva, selfless service. I'm so glad you brought this up. And that we never charge. We, you know, we have given 600 seminars Someone told us one day, they said, I've been on the spiritual path over 40 years, and I've never heard of anyone who has given 600 free seminars. You know, like maybe someone's given 50 seminars, and those weren't even free. And so he said, you know, you're rather, you are very unique <laughs> that, that you've given 600 seminars. We don't feel that way. We just do what we do. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't feel we're special, uh, but our philosophy is not to charge for spiritual teachings. And uh, some people do, and that's fine. We're not judgmental. We don't feel it's wrong to charge for spiritual teachings, but it's just not our path. The way we are is that we give everything freely without charging. Well, also, so this, this is Seva. I Just a pause. What you're doing to me is yeah. the the um, the very display of pure seva, which is service. We don't do service right. to get something back. We we will right. inevitably get something back because that's the way the universe works, right? Karma, right? And you have this amazing. Um, I don't know anybody else that's doing what you're doing, and I know you don't seek praise, but you've never. Uh, ask for a penny and you've been able to be supported by the universe in miraculous ways. Yes. And we can't help but scratch our head and go, well, does it have something to do with the goodness that you have been bringing and not even to seek anything in return, which is really important. It's just, yes. it comes in an yeah. open. You know, we actually learned this way of life. In a mountain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We learned this way of life when we were the personal attendants to a Tibetan Lama. And we traveled with him for three years. We organized all of his teaching on the West Coast from San Diego all the way to Seattle. We would drive him up and down the West Coast. And he was a very prolific teacher. He would, he would teach 300 nights out of the year. That's a lot. It's a lot. And, uh, And we had almost no money doing that. There were many, many days that we didn't know how we were going to eat the next day or put gas in the car to drive to the next town for him to teach. But it always worked out. And what we learned from that, this is one of the most important things that we learned in our life. We learned to trust and surrender. Trust and surrender to the will of God. Some people who are our friends who know our life, they say, you know, your life reminds us of that chapter in Autobiography of a Yogi called Two Penniless Boys in Brindavan, 
where Yogananda wanted to go to the Himalayas and his brother said, who's going to take care of you? You know, do you think God's going to take care of you when you're hungry living in the Himalayas? And he challenged them to get on a train. He would buy them a ticket. They could go to Brindavan. And he wanted to find out if they could actually get back home. And miracle after miracle happened. It was highly successful. They had a wonderful trip. They were taken care of. And someone bought them a ticket to go back to their home. And people say to us, you know, you seem to be living that way. You know, you just trust in God that God's going to provide. So getting back to that story about um, being offered that mountain, in the beginning, you know, we were just shocked that someone was offering us a mountain in the Himalayas. And they have done that. That is done. Uh, we have been given a mountain in the Himalayas. And actually, we've been given more land than we can even use. The local villagers want us to come so badly that they keep offering, oh, I can give you another 50 acres. I can give you 100 acres. So what we decided early on was uh, that this was a true blessing. It was a gift from God. And we decided that rather than using this mountain for our own personal use, uh, having our own ashram, that we would create an echo village. And we gave it the name Mahamudra Echo Village. And the purpose of our echo village is to teach sustainability skills that are so badly needed. You know, we're living in a society that is not sustainable. Correct. That's very clear. We have to change the way we're doing things if humanity is going to survive. So we decided we're being given this gift from God. We should use it to help humanity by teaching sustainability skills. And there are two categories of sustainability skills. One are inner sustainability skills, meditation, yoga, tai chi, qigong, inner sustainability skills that have been used for thousands of years to improve the quality of life and raise the level of consciousness. And then there are outer sustainability skills. And those are things like permaculture, learning how to create living soil, not deplete the soil that we use to grow our food. So there are outer sustainability skills also. So this is the purpose of our Echo Village, and we're in the process now of developing it. You can imagine, since we never charge any money at all to do what we do, people like think, wow, they're creating an Echo Village on a mountain in the Himalayas. They're also creating a school for Himalayan children. They're also, they have a Feeding the Poor program to feed the poor people. They're also starting a program to provide free medical care. They must have a lot of money to do all that. <laughs> all I can do is laugh at that. We have no money at all, but we have trust and surrender. And I mean, when I say we have no money, it's rare for us to have more than $2,000. Mm. It's very rare for us to have more than $2,000. 
So we, we don't have any money, but we have belief in this project and we have trust. And, you know, when we came back from India the first time and we decided to do a tour, we, we got off the airplane with $80 in our pocket. You know, people have told me I shouldn't say this. Very good friends who know a lot about spirituality. They have cautioned me, don't tell people that you don't have any money because they won't respect you. Wow. Westerners respect people who have money. Mm -hmm. And if you tell them that you have less than $2,000, they're not going to respect you. But I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. The conditioning of the society is like, oh, you know, what's in your bank account is your exactly. level of worth and, and knowledge and skill set. And it's so backwards. Yeah, exactly. I don't care if, if someone doesn't respect me because I don't have money. You know, I personally don't think Jesus had very much money. Yeah. And the and other thing is you could have money if you chose to. So it's your choice. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that's people, a very strong point is that it's, you're, you're making a very deliberate choice. That exactly. You're living the path of pure seva. There are many people that say they do seva. You know, even just giving money to the Red Cross or giving it to your favorite. How many celebrities do you know that do yeah. events where they want to give money, but they do it so that they can have their name attached to it? That is not saving. Right. Sorry to say. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Tara and I were living at an ashram one time, and I volunteered to be the Seva director. And people who had been living there for eight, 10 years came up to me and they said, Do you? do you understand what you just volunteered for? This is the worst job in the entire ashram. No one has ever volunteered to be the seva director. It's like the lowest job that anyone would want in the ashram. It's a headache. It's a nightmare. Do you really want to do this? I said, I love seva. That's Tara and my life. We've been of service to eight different gurus in our life. And every guru that we've ever met and our heart opened to them, we just wanted to serve them. We wanted to help them in their mission in life. So um, I should not neglect to answer your question about Paramananda Puri Maharaj, the 132-year-old saint who we consider to be like the most enlightened saint that we have met. Uh, he's just extraordinary. And uh, he was best friends with a very famous Himalayan master named Sambari Baba. Sambari Baba. S-O-M-B-A-R-I. Many people feel that Sambari, Sambari Baba was one of the highest enlightened masters of modern time. And Sambari Baba, uh, he owned nothing. Uh, I mean, he he had a blanket that he would wrap around him. He had a loincloth and a water pot. And he never built an ashram. He never built a temple or anything like that. And Paramananda, our friend, lived with him on the glacier at Gangotri, up high north in the Himalayas. There are... Uh, temples, Gang Gangotri, Badranath, Kedarnath are very famous, and many people go on pilgrimages up there. 
And we're going to be guiding pilgrimages up there in the coming year or two after COVID decreases. Tara and I have been taking people on pilgrimages for the past four years to India. And we've led 13 pilgrimages. But our, but our pilgrimages are not typical tourist trips. We lived in India seven years. We never went to the Taj Mahal. We've never been to tourist places. Our pilgrimage is to actually, it's an intensive spiritual pilgrimage to meet great masters, meditate in their caves, uh, visit them, visit where great Himalayan masters lived, uh, go to amazing temples. So it's an intensive spiritual experience. So anyway, uh, Parmanandapuri Maharaj, he was best friends with Sambari Baba. And they lived on the glacier at Gangotri. That's where the Ganges comes out of the glacier. Okay. The Ganges River begins at Gangotri. And uh, the last time we were with Parmanandapuri, I said to him, you know, I've read in books uh, about Sambari Baba, who you were so close to. And I've read that he could manifest food, same way Jesus did. Uh, is that really true? And he smiled and he looked at me and he said, yes, it is true. He said he would hold a big feast every Monday and invite all the villagers. In India, that's called a bandara. It's like a, a mass feeding. And he said one time he had enough food to feed 2,000 people, what? but 3,000 people came. Wow. So he didn't have food for a whole thousand. And he said he took the prana from the Ganges and he turned it into food for a thousand people. The, he was a great Siddha saint. And then uh, Paramananda told us, he said, uh, I, I lived with Sambari uh, on the glacier at Gangotri, and we had no clothes and no food. No, no clothes at all. They were naked. There's a, a tradition in, uh, in, it's a tradition called the Naga Babas. Naga Babas are called skyclad. They don't wear clothes. And so they lived on the glacier with no clothing and no food. And I looked at him and I went, how did you survive? Yeah. He said, we ate the celestial food. And I, I pointed to my third eye and I said, you mean um, Amrita? You mean you ate the Amrita, the nectar, the divine nectar that's secreted and drips into the mouth? Yogis who are in a high state developed the ability to produce Amrita from their pineal gland, and it drips into the mouth through a little opening in the roof of the mouth. We all have that opening, but it's closed. Right. But through the practice of the Kachari Mudra, or Kachari Mudra, whichever way you say it, which is a practice where you turn the tongue backward. This is part of Kriya Yoga. You turn the tongue backward and you press it against the roof of the mouth in the back. And eventually this little opening that is latent in all of us 
we can all do this, opens and the the pineal gland begins to secrete this fluid that drips down into the mouth. And that is called divine nectar or Amrita. And he said, we ate the celestial food. And I said, you mean the Amrita? He smiled and said, yes. That, that nectar that our own body can create is highly, highly, highly energizing to both consciousness and the physical body. So they can live on it. You know, people might wonder, how do these Himalayan masters live in these snow-covered mountains where there's no food to eat? Right. There's no 7-Eleven to go to for sure, or Whole Foods, or Trader Joe's. You know, up up there. How are Himalayan yogis living up there He's pointing with no to food? That's how they do it. Yeah. Huh? I said, you're pointing to a That's how they do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. That's how they do it. Yeah. Powerful. So uh, we, we feel incredibly blessed. Tara and I, we just feel so, so, so blessed. We've had an amazing life. If I died tomorrow, I would feel that I had the best life I could have possibly had. Uh, and the best is yet to come because we're starting our echo village in the Himalayas. Yes, and we must visit. So stick around for a little while, will you? <laughs> uh, we're, go- we're going to. We take good care of ourselves. We yeah. meditate. Uh, gee, how many years have I been meditating? I started in uh, uh, 1972. 1972 is when I started Here I meditating. Was born. So Tara and Tara also. Tara is a very uh, dedicated meditator. And uh, we, we eat really good, uh, very or, we only eat organic food and very healthy. And we also take Chinese tonic herbs, which leads us to the book that we wrote, uh, which is on Amazon. It's called Herbs for Spiritual Development. And you can purchase that on Amazon. It's a book about herbs that is very unlike any book you've ever seen or read about herbs. It's specifically about the herbs that great Buddhist and Taoist masters have used for thousands of years to promote health, longevity, and enlightenment. I have not read that book, so I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something I need to read. And maybe just mention... What is it about herbs that um, how it permeates, how it penetrates, how it affects the body differently than, say, even a vitamin? Because we know that we're talking about two completely different things here and how the body right. can accept herbs in a completely different way in service to our vitality and our enlightenment. Exactly. Yeah, I really think uh, herbs are God's greatest gift to humanity that every herb is here for a purpose. Every herb has an effect and it's here for a purpose. And uh, I was extremely blessed to be uh, the apprentice of Ron Teagarden, who is uh, world famous as an herbalist. He He was the pioneer of tonic herbalism in in this in this country. He, he 
he introduced people in this country and all over the world to tonic herbalism. Tonic herbalism is very unique. In China, they have hundreds of herbs that are part of what would be called medicinal herbalism, but there's a subcategory of tonic herbs. Medicinal herbs, if you went to a Chinese doctor, he might say, take these uh, herbs home, boil them in water and consume them for two weeks, but then stop. Mm-hmm. But the tonic herbs are herbs that can be taken every single day because they have no negative side effects. And in fact, in China, they actually cook with them every day. They make, they put them in stews, in soups, in all kinds of food. So the tonic herbs have no negative side effects, and they're also adaptogenic. They help the body adapt to stress. And the way I met Ron was someone told me, uh, there's this guy you should meet. I'm not going to tell you what he does. Here's his phone number. Call him tomorrow and tell him that I said you should meet him. And so I called the next morning and Ron invited me over to his house on Kenter, north of Sunset in L.A. I arrived at the house. Uh, He met me at the door, took me into the living room, which was his herbarium, where he kept all of his herbs in drawers. and, And I was amazed. I felt like I had been transported to ancient China. I didn't feel like I was in L.A. anymore. This was ancient China. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a tonic herbalist. And I said, what is tonic herbalism? And he began teaching me right then from the first minute that I met him what tonic herbalism is all about. And after 15 minutes in his living room, I looked at him and I said, I would love to live in a house like this. Mm. It was like an ancient Chinese herbalist temple. There were counters carved out of tree trunks. There were four chairs made out of tree roots that Tom Selleck wanted to buy from Ron. And I mean, this was like the most beautiful room I had ever been in. And I said, I would love to live in a place like this. And he said, would you? And I said, what? He said, would you like to live here? I was taken aback. I said, are are you asking me if I want to live in your house? He said, yes, you can move in. You can be... You can be my apprentice. There's an apartment in the back of the house that's empty and you can move in. I was living in Chicago at the time and I didn't even have money to rent a truck. He rented a truck for me. He moved me out to LA into his house. This happened. um, Oh my God. I'm very bad on years. Tara is much better on years. Uh, Roughly. Oh boy. Uh, It was, I believe it was the late 90s. I think it was the late 90s, maybe around 2000. I'm not really sure. But uh, I actually lived there for three years. I lived in his house for three years. And this is the way herbalism was taught in ancient times. 
it wasn't taught through seminars or YouTube videos. <laughs> it was taught by living with an herbalist and absorbing on a daily basis what they did, how they did it. And so, yeah, uh, for three years, I lived with him and his family, his wife and two children and their dog. <laughs> I used to and, go uh, to him in, uh, when he was in, on Melrose. Do you remember that in Beverly Hills? Yeah. You know? And he was the one yeah. who told me, you can't drink coffee. And of course, I love coffee, but I don't drink coffee. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> I can't drink coffee. And yeah. um or I, I have coffee once in a while. I actually quit. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I love coffee too. And every morning I, I always make coffee, but I came to, I came to the conclusion uh, recently that it actually was not good for me. Yeah. And now I drink chai. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I find that I do much better drinking chai. Yeah. Which, of course, has, has black tea in it. Ron would um, say that coffee, it's not the caffeine. It's, you could even drink decaf, and he'd say it's just as bad. He said it's the oils. They hit your liver and your gall yeah. like, like hard, and yeah. it's, not, it's not good over time. Exactly. Drink exactly, oil. yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, now I'm drinking chai every morning and I'm feeling even better than I normally do. And of course, Tara and I take uh, Chinese tonic herbs, which we buy from Ron's company called Dragon Herbs. Anyone who's interested in uh, learning more about uh, Chinese tonic herbs, uh, he has a beautiful website, dragonherbs.com. Oh, and I should also mention that our Echo Village website is mahamudraechovillage.org. So that's maha, M-A-H-A, -A, mudra, M-U-D-R-A, echo village, all of that is one word, mahamudraechovillage.org. And uh, if you're interested in learning about what we're doing in the Himalayas, and if you think one day you might want to come, we plan to have a uh, Yoga teachers, meditation teachers, our friends have already said, I want to bring the first group that comes to your Echo Village. So we'll have, a, we'll have accommodations for about 20 to 30 people. And, uh, and our whole philosophy is completely universal. We're not promoting any one teacher or path. We are universal. We respect all enlightened masters and we respect all paths to enlightenment. So our approach is universal. We do have our own personal practice, but we don't push that on people. Uh, our own personal practice is very related to Maha Avatar Babaji, who Yogananda said is the master of masters. But we are gonna be open to anyone who wants to come and they can teach they can teach yoga, they can teach meditation, qigong, tai chi. And we will also take people on pilgrimages through the Himalayas. So we're very, very excited about what's coming up. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us, Ramarishi. And um, very welcome. There's You're so much more welcome. to talk to you about. And I always feel this way after my podcast is that I have about 100 questions that I want to ask you and We'll have to bring you back and ask you 
at least 50 Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. I would love to join you again. It would be our pleasure. And uh, yeah, there is so much more to talk about. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.